And um, uh, um, it's not my style of music, but it's a really good song and fits in, fits in well with, with something very important we're going to talk about in this message this morning. Um, so, we are, we are in the midst of a series of messages that is taken from the lives of the patriarchs. Could you turn that one on for me? Oh, thank you. Um, a series of messages that is taken from the lives of the patriarchs. I want you to know that uh, I, I recognize I'm, I'm not the most creative. My PowerPoints are not highly entertaining. And this one will be less so than usual. So uh, I, I recognize that. Just want to confess that right up front. Um, it, is, it is what it is uh, for today. Um, but it's a series of messages taken from the lives of the patriarchs. There we go. Uh, we've been parked in Genesis 14 for a mini-series that comes from the lives of the patriarchs called God's Man at War. Abraham is the life that we're looking at. Abraham, God's man at war, from Genesis 14. Thus far, we have considered who Abraham was fighting against. He fought against four Canaanite kings. And who he was fighting for. He was fighting to save his nephew Lot. Right. This is the Bible story, the Bible account that we've been dealing with. Fighting against Canaanite kings, fighting for Lot. And we have been focused on how we apply the ideas that are in this chapter to ourselves as New Testament Christians. I have to tell you that I am really grateful that unlike Abraham, I'm not fighting physical battles with a sword in my hand. I, I, that's just not something that I look forward to. It's not something that I find particularly attractive. It's not something that I, uh, I, I, um, I would really aspire to. Um, uh, and yet, in some other ways, the battles that you and I fight are, are more challenging. You and I are, are looking at what it means to fight spiritual battles as, as Christians, what it means that you and I are also people at war, and how it is that you and I are supposed to understand this. So this morning, I want to take a break from Genesis 14 because there's a New Testament passage that deals with the subject of our warfare. And, and, um, and I want to take a, a little bit of time to address it this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to read the first six verses. I want to read just the first six verses. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. Now I, Paul... Myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Those are not words that you normally associate with a passage on warfare, right? The meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. I want to focus on this passage this morning. Uh, and I'd like to begin by taking a few minutes to just go through this passage, explain it just in the most immediate context, what Paul was dealing with in Corinth. And then, and then maybe draw some lessons out of this for you and I to consider this morning how we view the world in which we're living today, okay? So first of all, what's the Apostle Paul dealing with in, in this passage as he talks to the Corinthians, as he writes to the Corinthians? Well, first of all, um, uh, it's, it's worth noting that chapter 10 marks a really abrupt change, 
if, you're, if, you were reading, if you were reading the letter, if we, had, if we had taken the time to read the first nine chapters, we're reading through the whole book of 2 of Corinthians, you hit chapter 10, and, and it strikes you as something like, man, what in the world happened to Paul this morning? You know? Like, I don't know if he got up on the wrong side of bed. I don't know what happened. But everything that's been happening through the first nine chapters the mood like decidedly changes with chapter 10. It's like, wow, something happened. In fact, it's so drastic that many, uh, that, that, that some commentators believe that Paul might have, in the, middle of got, uh, in the middle of writing this letter, he may have received word from Corinth that there was someone that was stirring up trouble in the church. And, and all of a sudden, Paul has to address an issue that might not have been present as he was writing the first line. Not, nobody knows if that's true or not, but the change is that drastic, okay? The change is that drastic. Whether or not Paul got wind of something that had, that had happened in Corinth, the, the, the thing that is certain is that Paul was dealing with an enemy in Corinth, and Listen, this is one of those things I've talked with a number of people about. Paul, Paul was not on some kind of an ego power trip over his apostleship. Paul was not, Paul was not you know, puffing himself up and, hey, I'm an apostle. How dare you talk to me like that? Paul found that, that often when, when he had ministered in a place, that, that there would come a time when the, the work that had started... So let me just say this. Every work that God does is going to be opposed somewhere along the line. Okay, it's going to be opposed. And, and Paul was coming into territory, coming to places where the gospel had never been preached before. He was planting churches. He was leading people to faith in Jesus. He was planting churches. And often, people with a different agenda, when they would, when they would step into that place would start attacking Paul's apostleship. In other words, saying things like, Paul's not the only person you should listen to. We know what we're talking about too. And sometimes, it's not that Paul would not have welcomed other voices. It's just that sometimes the things that were being taught in the church of Galatia, for example, or in this case, the church of Corinth, were directly contrary to the gospel. And Paul found himself having to defend his apostleship having to defend his credentials in the way of, uh, by way of saying, no, you need to listen to what I taught you at the beginning. What they're saying about me is not true. And so he ends up for a time in a defensive posture, defending his apostleship in order to, to preserve what he has taught in these churches. So that's what's going on here in Corinth. Someone showed up, is trying to lead the Corinthian believers astray, talking about Paul in ways that suggest that people shouldn't listen to what he's taught them in the past, shouldn't pay attention to what he has said to them in the past. And Paul is back in that position, chapter 10, chapter 11, of defending his apostleship. All right? So, secondly, in this passage, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that, and this is just true of us of New Testament, as New Testament believers, the wars that you and I fight are not of the flesh, but they're spiritual. We're not fighting physical battles. We're not fighting physical battles. We're not supposed to be fighting physical battles in the name of Christ. You and I, we have a battle that we fight. Our battles are spiritual, right? We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we talked about our war against the world, the flesh, the devil, right? So we are fighting, we are fighting not against physical enemies, not against material enemies, not against people, but against spiritual forces. It can be sometimes difficult to tell the difference between people and spiritual forces. <laughs> and sometimes spiritual forces work through people. Uh, but you and I need to depersonalize the battles that we fight. The problem's not the person. The problem is something behind that person. Okay, We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 6 in this passage is... is interesting. Let me read it again and just, and just uh, make two observations from it. Verse 6, 
the Apostle Paul says, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. That's like a strange sentence, right? Like, okay, what is, what is he talking about here? We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is made complete. The, 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 the two ideas in this verse would be these. First one, that Paul was, was only going to, that, that, that the Corinthians had to act first before the Apostle Paul would act. In other words, if there's a need for me to discipline some situation, if there's a need for me to correct some situation, Corinthians, I'm not going to do it until you do something first. Until you do something first. I want you to make your obedience complete. You do what you need to do. And then I'll only address the things that absolutely are necessary for me to address. I don't have to address everything. I can wait, let you deal with things, let your obedience be made complete, and I'll do anything that's left. I'll do the leftovers. I'll do the stuff that has to be done after you've done what you're supposed to do. In other words, my work of correction, Paul speaking, Paul's work of correction would follow their obedience. Let me, let me just uh, pause here to, to make an observation. You cannot help people or do anything for them if they're not willing to take action themselves. We know this. You and I sometimes, I don't know about you, but I think this is right. I'm not sure this is right. How many of you would rather hang on too long than give up too soon? Like when I'm dealing with people, I, I, I want to hope that if I just stay connected a little bit longer, we might get somewhere, right? And, but the fact of the matter is, you just can't help someone who doesn't want help. There's just nothing you can do, right? And, and in fact, I, 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 I mean, I, I've, we've heard this, I've been told this from the time I was a young man, you know, it's wise when you're in a situation like this to give an assignment if they don't follow through with the assignment that it tells you something about their seriousness to deal. And I'm just like, man, I don't want to put people in those, those unstated kind of tests, you know. And, and I don't know. They didn't get the assignment done. Maybe they had a rough week. I can think of lots of reasons. I, you know, I don't want to give up on them. I, I don't want to evaluate them that way. And, I, and I, I have this tendency to hang on. But at some point, you wake up one day and you say to yourself, I don't know what to tell you, but it seems like today's the day. Today's the day that I have to admit to myself, there's nothing I can do for this situation because this person just doesn't really want help. They don't want, they're not following through, right? It's, it can be difficult to come to that conclusion. Paul, Paul in this verse is making a statement, Corinthians, I will step in and do the things that I need to do, but I won't do it until you've done what you're supposed to do. You take care of your end of it first, and then I'll step in if there's something I need to do. So that's the first thing going on in this verse. The second thing is something that I really admire about Paul. I think it's remarkable. How many of you, how many of you appreciate restraint when you see it? Someone that can hold themselves back and keep themselves. Can I ask how many of you have lost a measure of self-control that you wish you hadn't lost at some point in your life? Can I get an amen? Can I get a, a hand raise of confession? Right? That it's just too easy to get caught up in the moment, right? But what the, apostle, the statement that the Apostle Paul makes in this verse is a statement of restraint. I will not discipline the obedient, the innocent, along with the disobedient. So, Corinthians, you make your obedience complete. In other words, what it'll end up doing is those that are, that are in the camp of the obedient will be clearly seen to be obedient, and I won't be punishing the, the, the innocent with the guilty. All right, great illustration, and I think a lot of parents will be able to relate to this. 
parents, you hear a commotion, you know something's going on, somebody's doing something you're, you're not, they're not supposed to do, you walk into the room and you say, what are you guys doing? And some child invariably says, it's not, right? It's like, don't, don't include me in what they're doing, it's not fair. So, you know, my wife at times has had to point out to me, you know, you need to talk to this child and address this child, but that doesn't mean you need to talk to and address all the children together. Because it's kind of frustrating to be lumped in with the guilty when you're innocent. Am I the only one who has made that mistake? Right? Right? And what Paul is saying here is, no, I'm going to let the disobedient and the obedient clarify who they are. And then I'll deal with the disobedient. In other words, it's a statement of tremendous restraint. I'm not just going to fly off the handle. I'm not just going to act. I'm, I'm going to act in a measured way that is appropriate. In other words, with some self-control. I'm only going to deal with those who actually need to be dealt with. The last thing I want to point out from this, from this passage, the immediate context of this passage, is this. In verse 5, the Apostle Paul identifies who his real enemies are. Now, listen, in this case, there's people he's going to have to deal with. There's people, he's going to, there's an enemy that's a person, and if they stay in disobedience, he's going, to have to, he's going to have to deal with them. But the person's not the main issue. The person's not the main issue. The Apostle Paul uses three words that, that describe what it is that he's up against in Corinth. The first word he used, and this is New American Standard, the first word is speculations. Speculations. If you start reading various translations, you'll get one of about four different translations here. The word speculations is one. The King James reads, casting down imaginations. Imaginations. Some translations uh, 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 use the word arguments. Okay, from verse 5, we are destroying speculations or imaginations or arguments. Some translations read reasonings. Okay, these are the four words that, that get used in translations to, to express the idea. Speculations, imaginations, arguments, and reasonings. What the words suggest is that what Paul was up against was in the realm of ideas. In the realm of ideas. In the realm of philosophy, in the realm of logic, in the realm of even theology. Okay? So there's times when Paul has to say things like, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than the one you've been preached, it's a theological problem. Or I have to correct Peter because the theology that he's following is dividing Jews from Gentiles, and I can't accept that, right? So, so he's... He's viewing his war as a war of ideas, a war of philosophy, a war in logic, a, 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 a war that sometimes involves theology. Okay? These are the battles that he fights. If you haven't noticed, you and I are living in a world in which there is an all-out battle for which philosophy and what idea is going to win the day. You and I are dealing with this today. It's common. It's not unique to our day, but it's definitely present in our day. It's intensely present in our day. The second thing he says is every lofty thing or every high thing, some translations read. Every lofty thing or every high thing. The minimum idea would be this. It would be the pride of human ideas in disobedience against God. So, listen. You can be... I'm not saying this is something you should say openly, but this is just a reality of things. The reality of things would be something like this. When somebody says that they know better than God does how life should best work for a human being, that is the pride of a high thing. It's the arrogance of a human being that says, I know better than God. I know better than God. Now, they're not going to say it with those words. They may not even believe God exists. 
But what we're talking about is a human idea that is, that is contrary to God's stated purpose for that thing. And it's the arrogance of a human being saying, yeah, well, I know better than God does. I know better than God does. That's the minimum idea present. The other idea that is present in this phrase, high things, is that some of us, some people, have, have what we have come to call strongholds in their lives. They have ideas present in their life that are, have become a high place. So this is where I really should have made a picture. Um, Growing up where I did, we used to go to this camp out, about, about two hours outside of Madrid. I used to love going to this place. One of my favorite things to do there was we would take a hike to this old fortress. It was up on a, up on a, a rocky mountaintop, and, and it would take us about, I don't know, from the camp, hour, hour and a half to hike there. But when you got up there, it was, you realized it was built on the edge of a cliff, it was like this really pointy, rocky area. It was built up there. There's this just stone ruins. My favorite thing was this. There was this huge, heavy uh, cement. It, obviously, that's not the way it was originally. They had covered this hole. And it had a handle on it. You could actually slide it and, and look down into it. What they had done is literally excavated down into the rock of a mountain. And it was about 20 feet deep. And if they wanted to put you in prison, they'd just drop you in the hole. And the question would be, how do you get out of there? <laughs> and the answer would be, you don't. You don't. Because you dig this way, you're digging into the mountain. You dig that way, you're digging into the edge of the cliff. There's no out, right? Now, they would say that most people that were dropped into the hole broke a leg when they landed. So they really weren't going anywhere, right? But the idea would be this. This was a place that was extremely easily defended. Very few people would be needed to defend such a place because of how unassailable it was, how impossible it was to get to, how impregnable it was. It was a high place. It was, it was set in a place that it had strength and could be easily defended. And please hear this. Some of us have strongholds in our lives, places that are high and lifted up, places that are deeply embedded in our lives, that have been deeply ingrained in us, things that will not fall easily. The Apostle Paul said that's part of our war. That's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against these strongholds. Now, listen, one very easy way to illustrate this would be just to point out, can I ask you, I'm, well, I'm not going to, I won't ask you to raise your hands to this and, and make a public proclamation. But some of us as adults find out that we struggle with ideas in our heads that, that are deeply embedded in us because of things that were said to us when we're young. Somebody said to us, you're worthless or you're a loser, or you're whatever. And, and that, that, that idea developed into a high place, and it's got power. It's got military strength, and it lobs all sorts of problems into our lives from that place. It's a stronghold that needs to be torn down. The third thing the Apostle Paul says is that we're fighting against every thought, every thought, Boy, this is, this is a serious battle to fight against the thoughts. Um, some of us just have wandering thoughts. That would be maybe kind of some of the most innocent. Some of us have some just downright wrong thoughts, just wrong ideas, wrong thoughts that are in our heads. Some of us have some thoughts that are very, very, very habitual. Some of us have thoughts that are very harmful. The Apostle Paul says that we are in a battle against every thought, every thought that needs to be taken captive 
to the obedience of Christ. I'm not always sure about the wisdom of the things I do, but I try, I try to be somewhat open in order just to give as many of us as possible permission to do the same and a willingness to do the same. I've said this many times. I don't know fully where this came from. But if I make a mistake, if I make a mistake, if I, if, if it doesn't matter what the mistake is, it doesn't have to be anything involving sin at all. It doesn't matter what the mistake is. If I, if I drop something, the first thought that usually goes through my mind is, you're so stupid. Where does that come from? I mean, who, on one hand, I want to say it's the most arrogant thing I could say. Like, who do I think I am that I'm not going to make mistakes? Right? Like, why should I be surprised? I mean, oh, that's just par for the course. I make mistakes. I'm human. That's what I am. Right? But on the other hand, it's kind of like, why does that thought, why is that thought the one, why does not the thought, oops, I dropped it, come to mind? Why is it the thought of, you're so stupid? Why is that the thought that immediately comes to mind? You and I, for whatever reason, in our own different ways, have thoughts that we have to battle. And listen to this. My brothers and sisters, can I just say openly, dealing with your thought life is not fun. It's worse for some of us than it is for others. But it's really not fun to have to come to terms with the thoughts that run through your head and to say, no, I need to take my thoughts captive and I need to, to train my mind to think on things that are obedient to Christ. It is a, it is a vital part of life and it's one of, the, one of the most challenging battles that you'll ever fight to deal with the thoughts that, that play in our own minds in our own hearts. Okay, these are the three words, speculations, lofty things, and then just the most generic, every thought, no matter what. The thought might be simple, might not be simple. It might just be not very good for you, okay? Here's what I wanna, uh, what I wanna focus on before we close this morning. You and I are living in a world that is at, in, a, in a war of ideas. We're living in a world in which there is a war of ideas. So, um, you know, knowing how to get easy amens if I wanted them, I could, so I could pause for a second and just point out, for example, that we're living in a, in a world in which the very idea of gender is a battlefront. Agreed? It's at war, right? And I could say, listen, in the beginning, God made them male and female. It's like, there are a few things that could be more clear. Now, if you want to say, yeah, well, there's people that struggle with how they view themselves, <laughs> just get in line, buddy. We... I don't mean that flippantly. We, we struggle. We're human beings, right? Like, I don't know when it became like there's more than two genders rather than there's two genders and we're a mess. And we're kind of all over the place. And, and some of us struggle with things that others of us don't struggle with. And man, that's just the way it is. That's life. That's life and it's a problem. You know, we all need to get healthy in some ways. But somehow it turned into, we reject the, the idea that there are only two genders. And we're living in a war of ideas at this point. And there's a, there's a, 
a steady messaging that insists that you're just a bad person if you think about the issue of gender in a certain way. You're a, you're a bigoted, hateful, mean-spirited person to think about it that way. Rather than just saying, well, you're a nice person with your own opinions and your own ideas on the subject. No, you're a, you're a so-and-so if you view the world through the lens of the gender binary. We're living in the middle of a war of ideas. And that's not the only one. There's plenty of, of battle lines that you and I are dealing with today. Now, I want to I point these three things out very quickly this morning. The first one is, please hear this, the Bible does not offer us the hope of a world that thinks like we do. This is a daydream that we need to get over. Please hear this. My brothers and sisters, we have lived in a blessed anomaly in this country. Do you hear that? It's not normal. It's not what most Christians have lived under. You and I have had it good. We've had it good for generations. We've gotten used, so used to it that we think it's the norm, and it's not. It's not, listen, it's, we, we, it's almost as if we've had it so good so long that we've been trained out of the idea that we are strangers in a strange land. That's the norm. This is who we are. As believers, you and I are, are most believers in most generations have known without any question that they were a people at odds with their world. You and I have not had to deal with that for a very long time. A Judeo-Christian view of the world has been the predominant view in this nation for a long time. And we've enjoyed the benefits of that. That's not the norm for most believers through history. It's an aberration. We've had it good. Listen, it's a really good aberration. <laughs> It's an aberration to be very thankful for. It's, it's, we have been unbelievably blessed for a long time. Insert any patriotic song you want to sing at this point in the nation. It's been really good for a long time. We have a lot of reason to thank God for what we've enjoyed for a long period of time. But my brothers and sisters, please hear this. The sentence of Scripture is this. The kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. But it's not going to be because we get it all together and we get it all ready and the kingdoms of the world have gotten like really Christianized and so it's ready for Jesus to come back. That's not how this works. It's not how this works. He's going to come back to a world at war He's going to come back to a world that's shaking its fist in his face. And he's going to come back and say, ready or not, here I am. And for many, it's going to be the not. Right? For many, it's going to be the not. The not ready. When Jesus comes, it's going to be by interruption, not by Christianization. That's not what God has us here for primarily. That's not the hope that he has held out before us. That the world will be our friend. That the world will be made our friend. That the, we'll live in a world that's friendly to us. That's not the expectation that you and I should live under. The second thing is this, and I want to say this just as lovingly, as gently as I know how, but the Bible does not teach a culture war. The Bible doesn't teach culture wars. Now, don't make assumptions based on that statement. Please hear this. What the Bible does teach is Christians that are willing to be engaged in their world. And in this world, that means we're going to have some difficult conversations with people. And we should not shy away from them. We should not shy away from them. But can I tell you this? The goal is not to make people think like we do about life. The goal is to turn them to Jesus. 
And guess what will happen when they turn to Jesus? They will be discipled into thinking like Christians do. That's the goal. You and I, you and I are, are, are not called to make sure that our environment and the people in our environment think the way we do. We're not here for cultural transformation. Please hear this. Cultural transformation is always a side effect of gospel proclamation. When the gospel's proclaimed and is received by people, things change. Things change. It's the side effect of the gospel. One of my favorite stories is at the turn of the century, the, the, the mules that were used in the mines in Wales stopped working. The donkeys stopped working. You want to know why the donkeys stopped working? Because people were getting saved so fast and in such numbers that the ways the donkeys had been trained to obey by being beaten and cursed at immediately stopped overnight. And the donkeys didn't know what commands to obey anymore. They had to be retrained because people were getting saved and couldn't talk and couldn't act the way they once did. They were being transformed by the gospel. When the animals start behaving differently, that's cultural transformation. Amen? When your dog doesn't cower anymore, that's gospel transformation, right? I mean, it's a powerful thing. By the way, let me say it this way. I, I hope this is a gentle way to say it. I intend it that way. If my next door neighbor is going to spend an eternity separated from God, which I don't want, but if they're going to spend an eternity separated from God, then the fact is this life is the best life they're possibly going to get. In which case, I, I at least want them to know God's ways because it's just a terrible thing to live a terrible life now and then have it worse then, right? So, I mean, there's some benefit. But, but, but the flip side of that is this. If all you do is change a person's lifestyle, I mean, the reality is that you haven't done them any favors if... You make their marriage better and their relationships with their kids better and everything's better and they live a good, peaceful, secure life and then they wake up the moment after they die and realize that they're going to spend eternity without God. That's an awful thing. Our, our goal isn't just to create good people. My brothers and sisters, our, goals, our goal is to create believers in Jesus Christ to create believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this, is, uh, this one last thing here quickly. You and I have incredible freedoms as American citizens. We have the privilege of free speech. We have the privilege of engaging our culture. And I don't think it's wrong for us to do this. There's a time and a place for you and I to have difficult conversations about the issues of our day with people. But we need to remember that the reason why we're having those conversations is for the sake of the gospel. Is for the sake of the gospel. That should change the way the conversation happens. In other words, I don't want someone to just conform to a proper idea of gender and leave them without Jesus. The goal is to conduct the conversation in such a way that that the issue of Jesus is really the primary thing, that this is the thing that's most important. We can and we should engage, but we must always keep the gospel our primary mission. All right. This is a little bit long. That's why I cut some songs out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up quickly. I'm almost to the place where I'm going to play a song for you and give you a break. You and I have three battles that we have to recognize we're fighting in this realm of ideas. The first one is we're fighting a battle for souls. 
This is Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey those things that I have commanded. Right? Teaching them to obey the commands. Well, we have to remember that, that it's not, it's not, it's a very limited use to teach people to obey God's commands if they're not disciples of Jesus. You might change their behaviors, but you're not changing their destiny, right? The primary goal is to lead people to Jesus, to present people to Jesus. If we successfully taught people to obey God's commands before becoming born-again disciples, what we've accomplished is helping people live their best life now to be good moral people that are lost without Jesus and are living well-adjusted, healthy lives on their way to eternal separation from God. That's not the desired outcome. Our primary battle is for gospel regeneration that is then followed by discipleship. That's our first battle. Here's our second battle. I'm going to call this our battle for one another. So look around. I'm, I'm curious. How many, uh, just a, a random, so we kind of in our, in our country, you turn, you turn 18, you're no longer a minor, right? 18 is the dividing line. So if you're 17 and under, would you raise your hand real high? There's a lot of people in this room 17 and under, a lot. A lot that are 17 and under. So when I say our battle is for one another, this is much bigger than people 17 and under. But I want to focus on you just for a second. I don't know how many of you realize that you are, in, in world history, you are special people. You're incredibly unique. Incredibly unique. The technology that is available to you has made the world a completely different place from any generation that has ever lived before you. Any generation. So, I mean, my, uh, some of the older of my children here, the older of my children here, uh, Stephen and Amanda, were raised in a day when they, they, they would, cell phones were not known. They would remember the VCR days, right? There's some people today that don't know what a VCR is, right? What is that? So can I ask, is there anybody here who doesn't know what a VCR is? <laughs> Come on, Alicia. Um, so I, I, it's maybe a little bit extre extremely stated, a little bit facetious, but, but please hear this. The availability of information and ideas and voices that are talking to you nonstop, nonstop, is unlike anything that any generation before has ever experienced. In previous generations, the voices that you heard were people that were immediately around you that had access to you. Now, you guys have messages being sent to you from everywhere and everyone is available. You hear it all. And please hear this. One of the things that you, that, that you if you're going to, if you're going to win the battles that we're talking about this morning, you're going to, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're going to have to come to terms with this. And that is that there is an agenda and there is a philosophy behind everything you hear, read, see. It's all communicating one thing on the surface and something else in its philosophy, in its idea of what life is. So one of the problems we have is an entire generation of young ladies that are growing up having to deal with body issues because the messages that they live under every day of their lives are, you're not good enough unless you're like this. And one of the ideas you're going to have to fight is, how do I view myself? Am I good? Am I worth anything? Am I valuable because I'm made in, the God, in God's image the way I am? The way I am. 
young ladies, you're in a battle that is different than... I mean, that idea has always been there. We can always compare ourselves to others. But you guys have it in your face every minute of the day. It's just like there. It's part of the air you breathe. It's a battle. We all have our own battles here. And, and it's, it's not fun. It's, it's, re, it's reality, however. Everything. My children, some of my children, find, listen, I, know I can be overbearing. I really can I know it's hard for you to believe, but I can be, okay? Because I'm that guy that's going, hey, what's the message behind that song you're listening to? Oh, Dad, I don't pay attention to the words. Well, you better pay attention to the words. You'd better. What's that, what's that movie teaching? Oh, Dad. Can't we, can't we just have fun for a little bit? Uh, again, I can be overbearing. But I'm that person that's, looking, that's sitting there going, not at the turning off of your soul. You can't turn off your mind. You can't just stop evaluating and just claim pure entertainment because there's messaging happening. And it's happening all the time. And you've got to be wise as serpents in your day. You have to be wise as serpents. I'm sorry to tell you this, young person, but you guys are fighting in a, in a, in a world of, of war of ideas that is probably more intense than any other generation has had to fight because of how immediate the messaging is around you. It's intense. It's constant. It's relentless. And please hear this. One of the things that is being said on just kind of a, a loop is that Christians are mean-spirited, racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobes, and of all people, you don't want to be them because they are the nasty pariahs of society. And if we're honest, I have to say this, that Sometimes we Christians don't help our reputations very much because we get behind that keyboard on our computers and we start clickety-clicking away in ways that we would never do if we were face-to-face -face with a person across from us. And we just succumb to the world and play their games in ways that we shouldn't. And sometimes we are mean-spirited. And sometimes we're more angry than we are caring for their souls. And sometimes we're more in a culture war than we are in a battle for people's souls. Sometimes we just want to win an argument. Sometimes we're just scared to death because we see the, the fabric of our world slipping through our fingers and fading away and we want to hold on to it. And we're just acting out of fear and we don't want to admit it. We act like we're in a holy war when we're just back in the place of normal Christians having to lead people to Jesus and we're just scared to death of what we see happening around us. Amen? If we're honest with ourselves. So listen to this. I want to say this and I want to play the song. Get ready. The song's ready. The song, song's now. Please hear this. In the face of all that messaging, please hear this. My brothers and sisters, we have to talk about issues of gender. We have to talk about issues of sexuality. We have to. We have to talk about issues of race and racism. We have to. You can't escape it in the day and age in which you're living. These are issues that we have to discuss. We have to talk about issues like abortion. We have to talk about these things. They're part of the war of ideas in our world. But can I say what's important in our battle for one another, especially for those who are still young? They must see the adult Christians in their lives engaging in this war of ideas in a way that does not communicate to them that the accusations against Christians are correct. They're mean-spirited, bigoted, nasty people. Because my brothers and sisters, 
if we think it's appropriate to make jokes about certain, certain people. We think it's appropriate to demean. We think it's appropriate to talk down. We think it's appropriate to talk. We are going to play into the world's hands and the message will be, see, told you that's what they were. My brothers and sisters, we have to be able to be clear on what is right and wrong. And we have to let God change our hearts so that we love people that are not like us. Or that are not where we think they should be. We have to love people. And our kids need to know that we love people. They need to know that we love, that we're not fighting with them because they're, they're what they, we're fighting with them because we, we're, we're fighting a battle because we love them and I want that person to be in heaven with me someday. It's a huge challenge to us today to set aside our fears, to set aside the things that we see, to, to, set, to feel like we're under, we're under assault, and to set it all aside and to say, I'm going to conduct myself like the Lord Jesus would. I'm going to, I'm going to love him. I'm going to love him. Would you play that song for me? I'd like you to hear the words of this song. And I'm going to just, I'm going to make one little change to the song after it's played. But I want you to hear the song and ask yourself if we are this. Is this what our children are raised in? You ready? Go ahead and play it. Can't help but wonder if these floorboards creaked the same in 42 When my great-grandpa poured his heart and soul into preaching the good news And these tattered old red hymn books have caught a tear or two Cause it's hard to sing just as I am without the spirit moving you if those altars at the front could testify, I know they'd say It never once got old hearing a sinner call his name I know the stained glass never saved a soul And these pews ain't on the road that's come up yonder I know the pulpit's just a wooden stand But it's felt the power of God's hand As His glory filled the place with awe and wonder I know it's just a building Plain and simple white But it's the building where Jesus changed my life Nobody ever called it cool But it's where my mama met my daddy At vacation Bible school It's been the picture-perfect dream Of a thousand glowing broads It's heard the weeping As a loved one's laid to rest With sad goodbyes And I know the stained glass Never saved a soul in these pews
to call that church my home. I know the stained glass never saved a soul, and these pews ain't on the roll that's cold up yonder. I know the pulpit's just a wooden step, but it's felt the power of God's hand as His glory filled the place with all. Because, well, you know, when I got here, I would hear the stories of children that had fallen to sleep under the pews. Some of us grew up in church that way, didn't we? we we'd be laid on a pew, we'd fall asleep there, sometimes under the pew. That was just part of life, right? Please hear this. The imagery of a building, it's fine to use. But I got to tell you this. That song is really about whether or not the people of God existed in a way in which the atmosphere of that place was able to change people's lives. I don't want my version of Christianity to cut off the ears of people so that they don't want to hear about Jesus. We have to talk about hard things. But we have to make sure that our hearts have been touched by the power of God's Holy Spirit so that that person across from us knows that they're loved and that they're loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't allow the intensity and the loudness of the voices and the war that we have around us to turn us in our fear and in our frustration and in our anger into people that don't represent Jesus well, we're in a battle for each other. And my brothers and sisters, there's not one child in this room that I want to lose. I want them all to grow up and sing a version of that song. All. I don't want to lose one of them. That's the place where Jesus changed my life. I'm going to tell you this. It was never about the building. I'll tell you, the truth is, it's about us. It's about us. Are your children, are my children, attracted to Jesus because of the way I sit up here and talk on a Sunday morning? Because of the way we talk about each other around our tables on Sunday afternoons? about the way, by the way they see mom and dad talk to each other throughout the week. The way we sit down and have conversations about these issues. The way we talk when we see someone walking down the street that is a, a confused, hurting person. Do you and I conduct ourselves in ways that the generation coming up behind us says, I want to grow up and be a Christian like my dad? I want to grow up and be a Christian like my mom. I want to follow in those footsteps. That song's about winsome Christianity, my brothers and sisters, that's not confused about sin, but loves people enough for them to be touched by God's power and changed, if they will. Amen? I heard that. I thought, it's not my music, but that's my church. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. The last thing I'll just say very quickly is you and I are in a battle for ourselves. Some of us this morning still have thoughts that play in our heads that need to be changed. We have thoughts that play in our heads that need to be changed. 
You and I sometimes have battles in our own minds, things that need to be changed. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be emotional. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be sensational here. And I'm not going to suggest that there's not a time and a place for counseling and such things. But I'm going to tell you this. My brothers and sisters, there comes a moment in time when, when it becomes useful for a, bro, for, for a believer to just get down on their knees and repent before God for the lies that they have allowed to exist in their lives for too long and say, dear God in heaven, I need you to change the way I think about this thing. I have been taken captive in my thoughts by an idea that is not of you. My brothers and sisters, some of us just need to say, the fear that I live with in my life is a sin, and I need to repent. The bitterness that I live with in my life is a sin, and I need to repent. Yeah, there's a place to, to learn things that need to change and how to, there's a place for all of that. But my brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to get our, on our hands and knees and just be touched by the power of God and get back into the place where we say, I will not live any longer in a place that is in disobedience against God. You know what? In a very real sense, I, I, I have come to the conclusion that that thought that plays in my head of how stupid I am sometimes ends up at its core being a slander of God because it's insulting the image of God in which he made me. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about someone else or about myself. I need to bring my thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And some of us need to be healed in the ways that we think. We need to be healed in the ways that we think. And then we have to say, having repented, I get back on the, the, the battlefield and I'm going to fight this one out. I refuse to think in ways that are displeasing to God. I refuse to live under that any longer. I'm going to be obedient to the truth of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow. So can I, I'm sorry, before you bow, just give me one more second here. Let me just say this. Listen to me. Don't, don't think that because I'm sitting here, I'm claiming that I do this well or I do this right all the time. That is not the case. That's not the case. There are things that I find myself needing to repent of. But please hear this. My point is that, that this should be a place in which we don't accept the notion of playing religious games. This is a real thing, Christianity is. And you and I are called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And anything other than that is not acceptable. I'm not saying it changes instantaneously. I'm saying it's not a life to be lived in pretense. It's real. And I have to adjust my life to it. And that means that there's people I need to forgive. And that means that there are people that I need to ask to forgive me. That means I'm wrong about some things. It means I need to search my attitudes and my heart. It, needs, it means I need to search my priorities. It, needs I, it means I need to search 
my own heart and mind and allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction where it's needed. It means there are things that are not acceptable to me as a Christian. And it means that I need to take a, a good hard look at myself and be willing for the Holy Spirit to transform my life and make me like Jesus. And I'm just inviting you today to participate with me in a, because it's never going to be about the building. It's always going to be about us. To be a place that allows the power of God's hand to touch people's lives. In a world full of this messaging, one of the things that we need to see as most dangerous is hypocrisy and inconsistency. Our kids are looking for whether or not it's real. And we're going to have to demonstrate it to them. So now we can bow. And Lord, if there's something in us that you need to put your hand on, that you need to touch, There's a stronghold in my life that needs to be torn down. If I have to go home and say I'm sorry for ways I've talked about people, then Lord, help me to reflect Jesus well. There are some of us in here that need desperately a healing in our souls. I'm not going to act like it's simple. I'm not going to act like it's instantaneous. But I absolutely believe that there are times, moments in time, when God offers us the opportunity to say yes to him and to step into that fight and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing for you to transform this area of my life. And today I'm going to give myself to you. And that's my invitation to you today. Lord, I don't want to be in the number of those that are described in your word as having a form 